This is an ABC podcast. Hello from Wurundjeri Land. This is Life Matters. I'm Beverly Wang. Where, what do you want to be when you grow up? Classic question we ask young people, but the world of work and the types of jobs that exist is changing rapidly. So in addition to that question, what about career advice for young people? Are we doing right by them on that front? That's next on Life Matters. Let's talk. Right now, Year 12 students around the country are in exam prep mode or SWATVAC to dredge some buried trauma for you. It's the final month before those decisive hours that determine your career trajectory, or at least that's what teens are led to believe. But what actually comes next? New research shows that while students are as ambitious as ever, the career advice they're getting in schools is behind the times, leaving them confused about their prospects and desperately needs a refresh. So how do we make the transition as smooth as possible and ensure that young people not only get the education they need, but also the right advice about the world of work? What career advice do you wish you'd received when you left school? What career advice do today's school leavers need to know? Dr. Joe Gleason is a senior research fellow on the Q Project at Monash University's Center for Youth Policy and Education Practice and a working careers counselor. Joe, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks for having me, Beverly. Let's get some context set first. What did your research find about how students are making decisions around career pathways after school? Well, firstly, we think that uh, students or, or adolescents are making different decisions than what we did when we were younger. But what the research shows is they're not. They're choosing largely professional, status-oriented careers that require tertiary qualifications. So there's a very narrow range within which students are preferring careers. Your classic doctor, lawyer psychologist, that type of thing. So that's concerning um, from a number of fronts because there's limited places sometimes in those careers. There are other careers that the students just are not even considering at all. We're also finding and that... And Joe, is just that yeah, simply sure. a question of literacy of what the careers are out there, that we know things like doctor, engineer, lawyer but yep. perhaps not things like, um, I don't know, uh, finance conveyor, sir, for example. Yeah, no, definitely. There's very much what the students can't see, they can't imagine. Um, and that's coming from their parents and carers and social networks, who we know from this research are the most influential um, advisors of students' career choices and their expectations for their careers. So. They're very much getting led by their social networks around what's acceptable or what's expected of them from a careers point of view. And, and the knowledge is limited about what's out there. And so that limited knowledge is also shaping their career preferences. There's also really gendered patterns within the data as well. So we think that that might have changed. But young women, for instance, are still preferring um, careers in, in health and frontline services, hospitality, teaching, um, and are really not looking at options in construction or engineering or information technology or those types of industries at all. So there's very gendered patterns as well. And that, again, is being influenced um, from their social networks. 
We're getting a lot of early careers advice for young people <laughs> on the RN Facebook page. Some of it is really great stuff, and it's not as specific as what you're talking about, Joe, in terms yep. of A, B, and C, you know, professional pathway career. We're getting a lot of advice like, go explore, you'll find your way. You're not supposed to know yet. And uh, the perfect job for you may not even have been invented yet. Many jobs that exist now were unimaginable not so long ago. So don't despair if you're not drawn to anything in particular in 2022. A lot of uh, long-term wisdom there. But in terms of what you're talking about, about becoming literate, about the types of careers, jobs, and opportunities available, can you give some examples of where people can go to find them and then give us some context about the state of career advice, say, in Australian high schools right now? Sure. Well, firstly, I agree with your listeners. There is plenty of pathways that are open to people. And yeah, we don't know what occupations or career paths will exist in 5, 10, 15 years. It's changing that rapidly, as is the the tertiary education landscape and the training landscape as well. There's many, many changes that are happening, that have happened and, and will continue to happen. So I think your listeners are right on about um, giving advice to students, which is just, just it will happen. Yeah, will you happen. will find out. But I think, I think one of your comments was around just explore, and and that for me is a critical um, thing that students should be allowed to do and should be able to do within school, within their curriculum at school, and from a really early age as well. They should be able to explore. Oh, what does it mean to be an accountant, or what can I do with an accounting qualification? Where could that lead me? Um, and then determine whether they like that or that interests them or not, and then look at another pathway as well. So I think the first place of finding out information should be through the school. The school um, has alumni students. They have social networks through what parents, carers are employed in doing, and there's careers advice within the school. What we need to do in the school environment is allow the students time to explore and build the skills to to research different to research different career paths. There's some excellent excellent um, resources online. The My Future website, which is a government sponsored website, it's a free resource and it's excellent in terms of the information that is on there. Um, in terms of the opportunities for the students to engage in activities about their interests and their skills. Uh, and these resources are readily available. Unfortunately, they're just not utilised and the students and their parents, carers, social network networks are not directed towards resources like this. So they're not even aware. So my futures, I'm running that down Everybody write that down. My Future. You can go and check that out. It's a government website. Now, we are broadcasting from Victoria, where I know that there are job placement, work placement programs for some high school students. Not all, but some. Is there any kind of, if we zoom out and look at the the macro level, is there any kind of standard for careers education at a federal or state level in schools? No, and unfortunately, this is one of the issues. At a federal level or at a national level, there is a newly or or recently constructed careers strategy and and there there are frameworks and guidelines at a national level. Um, 
Unfortunately, that's what they are, though. They're guidelines. There's no compulsion at a state level or an individual school level to actually adopt any of the frameworks, any of the guidelines. So what you have at a state level then is you have differentially interpreted career strategies, careers frameworks, careers resources that are available. And then in a school, a school in and of itself as a single cell can sit there and decide, well, well, what do I want to do from a careers education point of view? And that can be as little or as much as they want. And there are some fantastic examples in Victoria. That's where I'm based. There's some fa fantastic examples, but unfortunately, they're only examples. The, the mainstream careers advice is quite limited. But Joe, this is structural, isn't it? Because the focus on high, in high schools is exams and ATAR scores and, and pumping through that curriculum at quite a demanding pace. It's the schools aren't measured on career success of their school leavers. They're measured on those ATAR scores. So it really is systemic. Don't we need to address some of those systemic issues? And, and how would you go about doing it? Oh, I 100% agree. Uh, so what happens in that environment is that the careers advice in the main gets limited to destination type advice. So in year 10, the students receive what is called careers advice, but it's around VCE subject selection here in Victoria. And then in year 12, it's about well, what university or tertiary pathways are you going to preference? And so in in worst cases, uh, that might be the only contact that students have with uh, careers while they're at school, at those single destination type points. Um, so I think what has to happen is, firstly, we need to shift away um, a careers education focus from destination, from ATAR and from a linear pathway into tertiary education. That needs to change. It's about equipping students while they're at school with the capacities and the resources to be able to make different decisions once they're out there. I know myself, there were many students um, that I was aware of when I was careers counselling that were great students, yeah, academically really great, very well-rounded, got fantastic ATARs and then went on to something, let's say at university, let's say it was an accounting degree and thought, no, this isn't what I want to do, but didn't have the skills or the knowledge or the capacities to actually go, well, what do I do now? How do I research a different option? What is right for me and where do I go to get help? So you often find that students, once they leave that very structured and very linear environment of, of secondary school, just don't have the capability and we to also be able to navigate. need to acknowledge that not, not everybody's school or home environment is conducive to being able to have those conversations or be able to have the time and space to think about it. A lot of people, you know, there's pressure to support the family. There may not be much time for schoolwork, let alone the conversation of what happens next. So, you know, when you're a careers counselor and you meet young people who are faced with so many different conditions, uh, mm. what is some of what is some of the advice that you give? We've got lots of texts coming in about following your passion, and that's wonderful. But what about students who really, you know, have a lot of stresses on them as well? What do you say to them? Oh, look, and again, 
this is where schools have have got to make it okay and accessible to have time whilst at school uh, to explore different options. Um, I myself have worked in some very disadvantaged uh, secondary schools and secondary school environments. And, and these students, for example, have a lot of home duties. They might be caring for, for siblings while their parents uh, or carers are working shift work. And there's just not the space to actually have conversations or explore different pathways in your own time um, or, or have conversations with your parents or access people within your community or social network because of the different pressures on you. So again, I come back to the school environment. These students have got to be allowed to have the time and the space within mainstream curriculum at school to be able to develop these skills and develop this knowledge. So that brings me to my next question is, is there space? Because we know that schools are inc incredibly pressured at the moment because of all of yeah. the fallout of the pandemic. We'd love to have that space. Does that space exist? And what kind of conditions or uh, incentives need to be put in place so school principals perhaps will be, a, will, will be will have the onus on them that they want to make that space in the in the timetable day? Yeah, sure. Look, and having worked in schools myself, I know it's incredible, incredibly challenging for, for school leaders and teachers to uh, create space for different activities uh, within what is a very crowded curriculum. Um, but somehow that needs to happen and there needs to be conversations at a state and national level to, to put stronger um, expectations around resourcing within schools uh, for careers education, for integrating it into the curriculum. At the moment, there's references to careers education and general capabilities within the national or the Australian curriculum. But at the end of the day, it's guidelines and it's references only. There's mm. no actual outcomes that are specified within the Australian curriculum around careers education and careers related skills and knowledge for all the students. I wonder what you think about these couple of texts coming in, uh, Joe. Oh, I'd love to uh, hear Someone them. saying, I think students are asked to choose subjects and subject streams far too early, narrowing their post-school options. Keep it general and solid. That's from Tandy Tandy. And another mm -hmm. text, best preparation for after-school years is weekend and holiday jobs as early as possible while still at school. It's the real world and allows them to experience all sorts of workplaces. So that's the whole school of life philosophy. Your thoughts on those two suggestions? Well, let's take the last one first. Um, oh, look, I'm all for um, students rounding out their education through work experience, through volunteering. And I think, you know, just back to our example of, of students or adolescents that are in really pressurised environments where they have a lot of home duties, just helping those students understand that those home duties, for instance, are fantastic um, you know, you're developing fantastic skills and experience when you're doing things like looking after siblings or managing the home or things like that. So firstly, we have to help students to understand how they're developing skills through different experiences and to showcase those, let's say in their resume or, or, or whatever. I'm all for part-time, uh, as I said, and volunteering work experience. Sometimes students don't have the capacities to do that. 
So I think bringing back uh, work experiences and world of work experiences while the students is at work. I, I know when I was younger, you know, work experience was a compulsory thing to do. Now, not so, not much. so much. And I'd love to see those opportunities for students to um, integrate with with employers and local community uh, and government while they're at school. I think that that's really important. And like your listener said, get that real world, that real life experience. To Tandy Tandy about choosing subjects um, too early, I'm not, for me, it's not necessarily an early stage, but I agree with the sentiment, uh, what she said. I think the pressure is on the students to pick subjects towards an ATAR and towards a specific uh you know, post-school qualification. Absolutely. Dr. Joe Gleeson, we'll so have to leave linear. it there, unfortunately. This is a tip of the iceberg conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for your insights. That's Dr. Joe Gleeson, a senior research fellow on the Q Project at Monash University's Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice and a working careers counsellor. Just a little bit from the Facebook page. Jennifer says, have a gap year. Don't feel like you have to go to uni. TAFE has good jobs. And Geraldine says, work at something you enjoy, even if you could make more money doing something else. So many texts. Young people are encouraged to have ambition. They're not necessarily encouraged to pursue what brings them joy or even what they're good at. So many words of wisdom flowing through to Life Matters. Thank you so much. Next up is A Life in 500 Words. When it comes to writing, the Booker Prize is the big one, the most prestigious writing prize in the world. Hilary Mantel, Peter Carey and Marlon James have all won it. And on The Book Show, you can get the scoop on the next big winner before their name is announced. Join me, Claire Nichols, as I take you through all six books on this year's Booker Shortlist. On The Book Show, Mondays at 10am or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Time for another story about a precious object for life in 500 words. And there's a recurring theme in this one about hearts and the power of coincidence, as you'll hear. This is James with his extraordinary story. About 30 years ago, I was in hospital jumping through the many medical hoops to receive a heart transplant. There was a lady in the bed next to mine who was waiting for the same outcome. She was a couple of years younger than me. I felt for her because she was getting little support from her spouse. I could relate to her angst because I was being put under a lot of pressure to get better and get back to work as soon as possible. Week in, week out, the waiting dragged on. Eventually I was sent home to wait for a heart to become available. I never saw the lady again until after we'd both been transplanted. I'd seen her at the clinics but never had any direct contact with her. As I got on with life again, I was back in my corporate job. It was about five years later that I was sent to a department to review the staffing levels. The boss gave me a list of a dozen employees and told me to get to work on the review. I couldn't believe it when I saw her name. I didn't recognise her at all. She'd changed her hair from a straight blonde to permed redhead. When I saw the zipper scar at the top of her blouse, I knew it was definitely her. I told her my name and that I had been transplanted too. 
She was shocked to meet me. None of her work colleagues knew of her medical history. We ended up spending a lot of time exchanging stories, but it was all done without anyone else knowing what was going on. Our exchanges were intense because we both fully understood what each of us had been through. After I completed the project, we kept in touch. Both of us were in relationships. I had three children, a mortgage, a job I'd lost all desire for because I'd witnessed the great work the people at the hospital were doing. We had a mutual interest in creative writing, which bound us together quite closely. She was quite a talent. About six months in, I was presented with a gold half-heart necklace. She retained the other half-heart necklace herself. When put together, they formed a single heart. Things between us became a bit more intense. My way of dealing with the situation became cowardly in the end. Communication between us was strained. Six months or so later, a letter arrived demanding the return of the half-heart necklace. I pondered over the necklace for many months previously. I didn't know what to do or do with it. I didn't want to throw it away, but it felt wrong to keep it. I took it up to an empty floor two levels up in the high-rise where I worked and slipped it down a crack between the carpet and the window on the northern side of the building. I thought when the building was demolished in a hundred years time, it may re-emerge, but it could sit there forevermore. Of course, I went back up there and tried to retrieve it with some tweezers and long nose pliers, but it was way too far down. I wrote back apologising and offering to pay for the item. She was not happy, but there was nothing further I could do. Months later, I went on holidays for six weeks. When I got back to work, the whole department of about 20 people had been relocated. Everyone had chosen their cubicle space except me. I got the last one available. Yes, it was two floors up on the northern side of the building. My feet under my new desk were within 30 centimetres of where I'd buried the necklace. It was an extraordinary coincidence. A year or two later, I got a phone call from a friend of the lady. She informed me that she'd passed away. Her friend also told me she spoke fondly about me in her final months. The funeral was tomorrow on a Friday and I was determined to attend. I was about to leave for the funeral but there was a major problem at home and unfortunately I couldn't attend. Next day it was the final day of the junior cricket club of which I was part of the committee. After the games, the medals and the barbecue I was left with the job of tidying everything up at the local school where the event took place. I went over to pick up a small bench seat. There, right in the middle of the seat, was a gold 
half-heart pendant. No chain and a millimetre or two bigger than the original, staring me in the face. I felt a total feeling of love, peace, relief and forgiveness pass through my heart, mind and body. There's nothing else I can say except it was an extraordinary happening in this mysterious universe. That's James with his story for Life in 500 Words. It was produced by Michelle Weeks with sound engineering by Carrie Dell. If you'd like to send in your own story about an object that's precious to you and why, head to our website, find the Life in 500 Words picture and see all the details of how to record it into your smartphone and send it to us. Our email is lifematters at abc.net.au. Just put precious objects in the subject line. Now, the Pineapple Project is next all about my favorite thing, food. Nazim Hussein talks all talks all the best tips, advice, and foodie suggestions for meal prepping on a budget. I can't wait. That's next. Does this ever happen to you? It's Thursday night, your night to prepare dinner, and you look at the time and it's already 7 o'clock. So you've got two options. You can start cooking now, which could take up to an hour, and you've got to hope that you've got all the ingredients for the recipes you've just Googled, or you can order in which mostly for me means eating something unhealthy and costing me way more money. For me, this happens far too often, and it's really hurting my bank balance and probably adding to my waistline. But what would you say if I told you there is a better way? And it starts with just being a little bit prepared. On the menu today, practical food tips to keep your grocery bill down, taste buds happy and time on your side. I'm Nazim Hussain, and this is The Pineapple Project. Like any sort of diet or exercise regime, it does become a chore. Like, I love it. I'm good at cooking. We do it every week, but it's still a chore. I've got to force myself to do it. It's just like the mopping or the folding or, you know, if I want to have a a productive week, I've got to get this done. This is Pat, the self-styled king of meal prep. I uh, am a machine operator, recently relocated to Toowoomba in Queensland, and I love to cook. Can you tell me about growing up, Pat? Were you always someone that was good with money? No, no, definitely not. I've had some good times and some bad times. Um, my family was pretty poor, mm-hmm. to say the least. Like, mum and dad worked really, really hard to give us everything that they could, but there was definitely limitations to that. How much do you spend per week on groceries? Uh, on an average for two people, and this will get us from a Friday to a following Saturday, about $154 a week on average this year. You've done the maths. Done the maths. Until recently, Pat was working in a FIFO job with some very tidy perks, like meals being included. But when that gig ended, Pat found himself in the same quandary as the rest of us, having to actually source his own meals. And when you're young and you want to do some travelling, maybe put some cash away for a rainy day, you need a strategy. You can't just order up a dozen oysters on Uber Eats every time you feel peckish. That is how Pat found meal prep. And Pat doesn't do things in halves. Usually meal prep will come on a Sunday just because of what we've got on. Let me get this right. So you meal prep weekly on $154 approximately. You make meals for the entire week for you and your wife. Yes, easily. So we will do a click and collect order every Thursday or Friday, depending on what we got on. So we pick that up over the weekend. So what you just you just order the the ingredients, no special food service delivery thing. No way, not just ingredients. So you you cook it up once a week on a Sunday. 
And then you've made 50 meals, effectively. Anywhere from 30 to 50, yeah. 30 and then to 50. I don't spend, other than dinners, I don't spend more than 10 minutes a day in the kitchen for the rest of the week. Wow. I food out of the fridge and I go. The big problem with your um, routine, I'm just going to say it flat out, Pat, is that you're making 50 meals, but uh, if you don't like day one of the meals, you're stuck with them for another four days. <laughs> oh, man. So that's I wonder a big, how a big... long it would take you to say that because this is probably the number one feedback I get. People say to me, how do you eat that all week? Uh, you just have to get the mindset of having to learn, you know. Mm. You have to get in the learning mindset. Basically, that's Pat speak for just deal with it. You've made 400 servings of spag bowl, you're eating them. And every day, you'll be reminded that you really should have used quite a bit less salt in the recipe because you're drinking two litres of water with every meal. So there are downsides to prepping all your meals ahead of time. But for Pat, the upsides outweigh them because he is saving cash. And a lot of it. And he doesn't put too much salt in because Pat can actually cook. But even when you're prepping meals ahead of time, some ingredients are just pretty costly. Like, I could probably eat my mum's coconut chicken curry every meal for a week, but I think she uses some pretty fancy stuff to get those Sri Lankan flavours popping. So I wonder, what is a super cheap meal to prep? So I'm going to call it the tuna rice dish. Yeah. It's just two tins of tuna, rice and a sauce of your choosing. So if you go to the home brand stuff of all this yep. uh, and you make the right amounts and without going too too hectic, mm -hmm. this will come down to $1.60 per serve. <laughs> Two 400 grams tins of tuna. About, I actually looked this up this morning before I came. It's $4.25, so $8.50 there. Mm -hmm. And then rice is only $2 a bag and you only need 75 grams of rice, give or take, so you're only spending a couple of dollars on rice there. Plus your sauce. So if you get a home brand sauce, whether it's pasta sauce or a teriyaki or a sweet and sour or whatever, you should be able to pick them up for about 2 to $2.50. So this will make you five serves and you divide that by five and you'll get anywhere from $1.60 to about $1.95. depending. And it's got heaps of protein in there as well, so if you're bulking up, you, you know, you've got enough protein there to repair your muscles. Yeah, so it's gonna fill like you said, up too. I would struggle to eat that for a week myself too, so I'd probably have to add in a bag of like frozen peas, corn, carrot, uh, maybe even sprinkle some cheese on top. Now you're probably getting up to the $2.30, $2.40 mark. <laughs> wow. Okay, so it um, is really possible to eat for, for not much at all. Yeah, absolutely. You're gonna it's probably gonna be a bit of mind over matter come Thursday, Friday, for yeah. sure. But <laughs> if if you're if you're committed to saving money, yeah. absolutely. I, I need you on speed dial. But not everyone has pat on speed dial. So how does everyone else stay well-fed without breaking the bank? We asked them. Well, some of them. I consider myself to be reasonably frugal with most things. Like, I don't spend a lot of money on luxury clothes. Like, I drive a pretty old car. When it comes to food, it just all goes out the window. You know, I might look for a special when I'm standing there at, like, the fancy cheese part of the supermarket. But, you know, I, I like to spend a bit more money and I like to get better stuff. And I know it doesn't often make the difference on the plate. It's definitely an indulgence of mine, but if I'm being honest, and if I had to tighten up the budget anywhere, food's where it needs to happen. I do think I spend too much on meals that I eat at home, mainly because of a lack of planning, or maybe I do plan and then something else happens, and so I change my mind about what I'm going to prepare or my time to do it. I don't keep a close eye on how much I spend week to week. Sometimes it's don't be afraid of eating jar sauces and things like that, where um, the convenience factor is, is so much more important uh, than having to buy takeaway. 
you might be able to put together a quick meal like a spaghetti bolognese using a jar sauce rather than having to take an hour or more to get all the ingredients together and, and put them in and cook it all up. I do a mix of um, meal prepping, home meal service and buying pre-made supermarket meals on the way home. Sometimes if we have a really busy week with uh, things on in the evening, things on in the weekend, that's where I'm more likely to fall into a pattern of grabbing takeaway either for lunch at work or after um, I get home and I'm too tired to put things together. All right, I get that meal prepping can be a great way to save some money, but I actually like being in the kitchen and making a meal for my family. There's something really nice about being in the traditional centre of the home, doing this almost ritualistic task of nourishing my people. Is that too sincere for this podcast? Now well. But seriously, I don't think I'm alone here. Cooking is fun. Chopping carrots is like free therapy, except you also get to have some chopped carrots at the end. So for the kitchen dwellers out there who actually want to make the time to be near the stove and save some money at the same time, I give you Alice Zaslavsky. Alice is a food writer and honorary pineapple project advisor, and she says one way to save cash is to have a big old bowl of backup plan to protect you from ordering in. My number one tip is always have a big pot of soup in your fridge. So it's a big pot of vegetable soup for us. You know, it might be borscht or it might be just a, a blonde, brothy, cabbagey soup. Firstly, it's delicious. I really love it. Secondly, it's nutritious. Thirdly, it's a really good way of using up that stuff that's in the bottom of your crisper and not looking so exciting. And fourthly, on those nights where you come home and you're just like, I've got nothing to eat, where am I going to go? That's going to give you a little tide over uh, to kind of give you some brain power and think about what else you might eat. Or you could just eat a bigger bowl. And like I said earlier, some ingredients make for better value than others. Vegetables will always give you really great bang for buck. And think about shopping at the end of the week at fresh food markets where they tend to get rid of surplus stock and they'll sell it to you at a really discounted rate. And then just make sure you use it. So whether that's making a big pot of soup or some sort of braise or some sort of curry base that then you can add veggies to through the week, it's up to you. Workday lunches are another easy way to burn through your budget. Like, I just had a sandwich, which, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, consists of two slices of bread and some protein. And it cost me, drum roll, $18! <gasps> Meal prep Pat would have survived for months on that much money. But I get the posh sandwich because I figure, hey, I survived all the way to lunchtime. That's worth celebrating. <laughs> Luckily... Alice has some great tips on how to make your work lunches pop. Whether it's stuff to jazz up your lunches, you know, if you've got some kimchi or sauerkraut in the fridge at work and you can add that into some leaves that you bring, you know, a tin of tuna or a tin of beans, mix that together, you know, with a dressing that you can put into a reused jar. Those are the sort of things that are going to keep you feeling like you're having a new thing every day, even though you're just kind of recycling. Cheese is very useful. Something like a crumbly feta or even, you know, some grated mozzarella. Better yet, just slices of cheese and then you can grate them. <laughs> you can grate it just by tearing it up into a salad or popping it into a sandwich. And don't be afraid to use the equipment in the office kitchen. Things like the toaster or the griddle plate, that can be used over and over again. And not just for toasties. You can use that to reheat things like, let's say you've got last night's roast. 
pop it between two pieces of baking paper and give it a good press in the sandwich press and it'll feel like you've made it just before. You get a little bit stanky, so you've got to be conscious of your workmates. And obviously the same goes, you know, tuna. Tuna always smells really great when you're eating it, but not so much when someone next to you is eating it. So just be conscientious of your neighbours. But also if you are worried about aromas, reheating something is what will activate those volatile compounds. So just keep it cold. Is anyone else having mild anxiety at the thought of using the communal sandwich press at work? What about the laminated passive-aggressive note that Adrian from HR put up on the wall about hygiene? Doesn't that stress you out? You know what? Let's harden up and make a toasty at work. Are you in pineapples? How about a toasty pact? It was me fist bumping myself. We're in it together. No matter whether we're heavy preppers like Pat or creative fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pantses like Alice, there's one thing we all have in common. We're going to need to buy our food from somewhere. And the king of meal prep, he's got some supermarket skills. Click and collect. That's the best tip I can say. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Click and collect is life-changing. You have to go in with a plan. So what we do is we will pick out a rough menu for the week, especially for meal prep. You have to individually search the items that you need for that. You could quite easily just type in chocolate or ice cream or whatever Mm. whatever your vice is and then pick from there. But... It is an extra step in the process of having to... You have to seek it out as opposed to just it being there in your face. And you're not seeing the special right there or you're walking past it and you're like, oh, you know what, I did earn that chocolate today, I'm going to get that. So So you're basically protecting yourself from your own emotional impulses. Yeah, yep, definitely. Uh, And the other thing that you... Like, there's so many benefits. So if you say, let's just say you're looking for cheese or whatever, you type in cheese on Click and Collect, you can filter the results from cheapest to most expensive. So you can go in there and you can find what the cheapest one is per unit price. And Pat says Click and Collect can even act as your budget calculator. When you're doing Click and Collect, there's a running total in the corner. It tells you exactly what's in your basket. So if you're getting close to that total and, you know, maybe you did throw a couple of items in that you probably don't need, you go back and take them out. Or, you know, you've done really good. You come up to 130 and you go, sweet, well, I've got $20 extra. I'm getting... Got to type in chocolate or yogurt. Yeah, what ice cream's on special? Get the three of those. (laughs) When talking to Pat, I found myself thinking about used-by dates. Because when I buy a My Muscle Chef meal from the supermarket, it says when it'll go off. But that's something that's missing when you're doing the prepping yourself. Food safety is obviously really important, so just make sure that you're thinking smart. So something like farinaceous, so rice uh, or grains of any kind, they have a much shorter shelf life than you think. If you're not going to eat all of the rice that you've put in your rice cooker, freeze it right away. Cooked rice freezes beautifully and you can portion it out and eat it as you go. The same goes for other dishes. If you've made a really big batch of bolognese and you don't think they're going to make it through the week and eat it all before it goes off, portion it out, freeze it for Ron. Ron's your mate. You're going to be gifting your future self with something that's delicious. You know, that's what I think is the beauty of meal prep is it's like you're making little gifts for future you. And before we leave Pat to his prepping, one last tip, and it seems like an obvious one, but it does make sense. My number one tip is learn to cook. Learn to cook. So that's the first thing you need to do to be able to meal prep. Learn to cook good. Okay. Learn to cook good. Yeah, like if you're good at cooking, um, it'll make the whole process much easier and more enjoyable. If you want to learn, there's plenty of good channels on YouTube. There's plenty of good people out there. TikTok's a little hard because it's so quick. You've got to keep pausing. Yeah, that's right. You've got to keep pausing and watch it again and you're not seeing all the all those steps in the process. Mm. But there's plenty of people out there on YouTube, even if it's very rare for me to cook from a recipe because I do usually know what I'm doing. But if I'm going to experiment a little bit or try something I haven't tried before, there's no shame in jumping on a recipe, 
Uh, there's some really good websites out there, some really good Australian run websites. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you just jump on there, read what they're doing. And uh, some of them will come with links to little YouTube videos as well. So what you're saying is there's no excuse for saying, oh, I don't know how to cook. If you've got Wi-Fi, you can watch a tutorial on YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think um, is the biggest reason why people maybe start meal prep and then just kind of give up? I would like to think the biggest reason people start would be the same reason I did. Probably out of necessity or a drive to need to change their habits, um, spending too much. Why they stop is they're doing it wrong, it's too hard, it's too time consuming, and they're not prioritising it. it. It's like diet or exercise, you have to commit, you know, you have to stick to it and you have to find a way that works for you. Not everyone can give up an hour or two on a Sunday. Some people play sports, some people like to go away on their weekend or, you know, Sunday session at the pub. Whatever you want to do on the weekend, that's fine. I would just say, all right, well, you plan Monday, Tuesday to cook in bulk those nights and mm -hmm. that should get you through to the end of the week. You know, it, it's about making it fit into your right. lifestyle and your routine. I don't know what some of you are thinking. What if you can't cook? What if you just don't have the gene? Or maybe you're not into grocery shopping and you just want the tough decisions to be made for you. Enter food subscription services. Here's tech journalist Tegan Jones, who's tested a bunch of them out. So I've used a few of them um, most recently uh, in the last couple of years, and I had pretty good experiences with them. I think they can be quite a good stepping stone for anyone who is just learning how to cook or could benefit from a little bit of extra guidance and ingredient portioning, as well as people who have those really busy lifestyles, don't always have the bandwidth to think about recipes and ingredients and shopping for them. And it's at least cheaper than ordering takeout all the time. And it can be a really good solution for people who are conscious of food waste and don't want to you know, overcook for themselves or for a smaller household. These food subscription services, basically they send you the ingredients for some meals with printed recipes and you do the rest. For five meals a week for two people, it's around the $110 to $120 mark if you don't have some sort of discount applied. So that's getting towards like $10 to $12 a serving. And, you know, it gets a little cheaper per person if you're ordering just three or four meals um, or if you have more people in your household. But it still works out to be about $10 per serving. Ouch, $10 per serving. Compared with Pat's tuna rice dish, which was less than $2 per serving... Now, sometimes the ingredient prices can be um, comparable to their RRP at the shops, um, but you just don't have that advantage of being able to take advantage of um, sales or half-price items and plan meals around those savings, which I do quite a lot in my own life. Well, it's a trick, right, because it seems like you are cooking, whether it is popping something in the microwave or whether it's like you need to chop up some vegetables or boil up some spaghetti before you add something. That's marketing guru Karen Ferry. Karen has a new baby. Congratulations, Karen. So she's spending most of her energy at home feeding the kid. But according to science, she needs to eat too. So Karen says her family does a combo of ready meals from the supermarket and actual cooking with chopping and simmering and stirring and boiling and whatnot. But in comparison to groceries, it never holds up. So they're really actually more targeting towards people who have a mid-level disposable income. You know, they know that it's not going to be about the people who are trying to make ends meet at the end of the week or trying to budget right. as well. Because it's probably going to be cheaper shopping. Yeah, because you're paying for the service of having someone buy and box and deliver all that stuff for you. There's a service fee. And any listener to this pod feels a full-body cringe at the mention of a service fee. 
Frugal people do their own servicing, thank you very much. So maybe these meal subscriptions are really to help people save time, not money. But if you're keen to try them out, Tegan says it's not too hard to avoid paying full price. If you get them sort of at a discount, I know that you can usually find them around a lot, um, like coupon codes and things like that. I've seen them get down to about $6 per serving, which is not bad. Um, and, and you do see a lot of those coupons out there. So I always say do a bit of a Google or use one of those uh, coupon code browser extensions. They can be helpful. All right, let's add this all up. Here are the top tips. One, time equals money. If you're serious about meal prep, add it to your weekly chores. Make it fun. Do it with your partner or your family. Maybe in fancy dress. Two, if you want to order in, do it with a meal service, but get it when it's on sale or take advantage of the trial periods. Three, use click and collect for your weekly grocery shopping. That way, you're less likely to impulse buy and you'll probably save some money. Four, invest in a freezer. That way, you can always have a backup meal ready to go. And five. Now, this is a big one. Learn to cook. Why outsource a job you can have so much fun with? Some top tips there from Nazim Hussein. Next time on the Pineapple Project, people talk about how expensive it is to have children. But do they really need all that stuff, especially when they're babies? With the Queen's passing, one listener was reminded of the last time a British monarch died. 91-year-old Dorothy Taylor was a young nurse living in London at the time. Over to you, Dorothy. It was in February 1952. I was 20 years of age and had just started a general nursing training at University College Hospital in London. One day, the dreadful news was broadcast over the radio that King George VI, the father of our beloved recent monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, had died at his home in Sandringham and would be lying in state in Westminster Hall from February the 11th before being buried. He was held in very high esteem by the nation for he had taken over the reins of his enormous task in 1937 after his older brother, King Edward, had abdicated in order that he could follow his heart and marry Wallace Simpson. King George had also remained with us in London throughout the war years, sharing with us the devastation of the London Blitz and even having his own home, Buckingham Palace, bombed on several occasions. We owed him and his family a lot and we all felt that we wanted to show our appreciation for his years of service. But how would we be able, as mere nurses, to wait in the enormous queues that were gathering each day at Westminster Hall, where his body lay in state, to walk past and pay our respects to him? Our hours of duty would not allow it to happen. But yes, now they could, we were delightedly told. The powers that be foresaw this situation and a message was put out over the radio that all nurses would be allowed to go straight away to the head of the waiting people in the queues. What we 
was equally important was that that hospital matron notified all staff members that they could wear their nurses' uniforms to the venue so they would be recognised, something that had never been allowed previously due to the fear of bringing back an infection into the wards. And so I went one day with several of my nursing colleagues during our afternoon break of duty and we were able, after only a short delay, to walk solemnly past the King's Coffin in the Great Westminster Hall, where not a sound was made above the shuffling feet of the hushed, waiting crowd. It was a very emotional experience. The coffin was guarded on all corners by immaculately attired service members who remained motionless with bowed heads and the atmosphere was one of extreme reverence. To everyone's delight, it was noticed that the Queen Mother and her daughter, who became Queen Elizabeth II, together with younger sister Princess Margaret, had also come in by a side door with veils discreetly placed over their heads to honour their revered husband and father. Not a word was spoken among the crowd to respect their privacy and grief. When we emerged from the hall, we realised how little time there was left for us to get back to the hospital for our evening tours of duty. We hurried along the road as fast as our legs would carry us, for there was no chance of finding a bus or vacant taxi on that special day. We came to Trafalgar Square. That too had throngs of people milling around it, and the cars and buses were swirling around the perimeter. How were we ever going to get across to the far side to go that final distance to the hospital? kindly taxi driver became aware of our dilemma. He put his hand out of his window to stop the car beside him. The bus driver behind them also noticed what was happening. He stopped too. Soon the entire traffic around that bustling area of scurrying motion had been brought to a voluntary halt and the taxi driver and some of the car drivers leant out of their vehicles and with kindly waves of their hands they called out Thanks girls for what you do We appreciate what you do We know you've been up to see the King God bless him and you And with that the traffic started up again in all its lanes of bustling activity Once we had reached the far side of the square to continue on our way it was a day never to be forgotten.
That's Dorothy Taylor beautifully voicing her story about attending Westminster Hall to pay respects to King George VI. And big thanks to her son, Mark, for sending that in to us. Now it's time for a Nat Chat. Nat Tenchich is here with your feedback about our stories for today. So many beautiful stories today, but lots of people wanted to get involved in the conversation on career advice, particularly this uh, talk about whether career advice that is currently being offered in schools is good enough for today's students. And Patrick says the HSC is not the only pathway to achieve career goals. Unfortunately, a lot of teachers focus on tertiary education as the end point of school. In my daughter's HSC class, around 50% have indicated interest in uni, and yet they were funneled into academic subjects and actively discouraged from doing vocational education. Kate says the best career counsellor I've ever seen was one uh, in Victoria who brainstormed with all uh, kids privately, putting all their likes and dislikes on a whiteboard where they could see it. Their idea is not just about score and the results of exams and not just throwing brochures at them. It was wonderful to see and the outcomes were amazing. Uh, And on advice, because we did ask you for advice for the next generation, you had plenty. Dan says, try lots of jobs to find out what you like. Always say yes to opportunities, no matter how big or small. Experience is key. And Peter on Facebook says, it's also okay to study something at university that doesn't have good career prospects. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is a perfectly valid reason to study something you enjoy and critical thinking skills will help you for your entire life. Education, workplace experience and doing something well paid are all separate things. And the big thing that people are stressing is that you can change, which is not something we're really taught in school, but... Change is going to come whether you want it or not. It totally happens. Melissa says it's okay to change courses if you find the one you have isn't suiting you and what you think you'd enjoy at 16 might not suit you at 20 or 35 or 40 or beyond. Also, uh, talk about different types of opportunities, not just being an employee. When my kids went through school, I wish they were taught things like their rights at work, awards, minimum rates of pay and more. And Ellie also says don't stress too much about choosing the perfect career. You can probably change it a few times over the years because industries come and go, conditions change and life changes. So don't be afraid to keep on going and don't kill your health for your career either. It's not worth it and burnout is real. Nat Tanchich, thank you. Follow Life Matters on the ABC Listen app where you can also find other fantastic ABC RN shows like The Art Show, All in the Mind and Stop Everything. We always welcome your contributions to Life Matters Life and 500 words and the two hard basket send them to life matters at abc.net.au for life in 500 words put precious objects in the subject line for the two hard basket put two hard basket in the subject line i'm beverly wang thanks for your company let's talk again soon You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.